What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Write Who You Know. I'm Matt Hausfetter, and this is the Screenwriting Podcast. It's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Uh, we're just coming back from a long Labor Day weekend. Uh, it's real exciting in my house. My daughter has a cold, and she starts her first day of real-life preschool tomorrow. Everyone's on edge. Uh, we're hoping she's better, and uh, pray for us. Keep us in your thoughts uh, and prayers. Uh, what else is going on? Man, that's that's really it. Uh, on the podcast today, Faraz Ozel, a uh, really fucking funny guy. He's a stand-up comedian and a writer. Uh, I met him through Abdullah uh, Saeed, who I did another episode with. You should all check out. I met him on the strike line at Paramount one day. Uh, I think maybe we were having ice cream while walking up and down the streets. And uh, I got in his DMs, and uh, he agreed to come on the pod and talk about his incredible... Uh, journey from no bullshit uh, being recruited to the CIA uh, to stand-up comedy to professional working writers' rooms uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and so I'm really just excited for you guys to hear his story. Um, man, oh, you know what else is exciting that I, we could talk about? Uh, before we get into Faraz's, I saw Oppenheimer. I saw it in 70-millimeter IMAX uh, with my buddies, uh, at the man's groundman's Chinese at six o'clock on a Friday. We got out, it was like 10, truly. Uh, it feels like it maybe it was 9.30 after trailers, all said and done. Long movie. Uh, the the bomb of that movie is like the midpoint. I didn't realize like, wow, like a 2.40 and it fucking felt like it. Definitely think we could have given that thing a little haircut. Maybe, maybe cut 30 off. Look, I love Chris Nolan. No disrespect, no shade. The dude has made some incredible movies, but like, a longie is a longie. Uh, so go see Oppenheimer. I think it's definitely worth it. It was so fucking loud. Uh, it's just long. It's long and loud. Um, so shall we get into it? That's what's up with me. What's up with you? I hope you're good. I hope you're leaning back in your chair, maybe listening with your partner, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, uh, doing your thing, maybe a pet that you have, a significant other. Uh, relax, unwind, settle in. Today we've got Faraz Ozell on another searing hot episode of Right Who You Know. Pass. Nope. We love Matt. It's just a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us when you have some bigger attachments. Tell them right what you know. No, tell them right who you know. What's your tattoo of, dude? Uh, this is the house I was born and raised in. And my parents still live there. Where is that? That's near San Jose in a town called Los Gatos, kind of close to Santa Cruz. I feel like I've driven past the Los Gatos sign on the freeway a yeah. few times. Have you ever been to Santa Cruz yes. Beach? Yes. Yeah, so it's the last town before you go down the, the highway, just 17, all the way to Santa Cruz, the windy-ass road. It's kind all of right. the last town. It's an official, officially a town. What the, makes a town a town and a, a, like a not a town, rather? I don't know. Uh, not a lot of minorities <laughs> in the True. town. Yeah, you know, it's quaint. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of antique shops. Yep. But it's uh, yeah, it was a smaller town. But then it started blowing up, catching the um, the tech boom that boomed, you know, bled over from San Jose. Yeah. And also it was the birthplace of Netflix. No shit. Yeah. So Netflix, the first offices of Netflix were literally like four blocks away from my place, and they're the equivalent of like a three bedroom 
small family home is what it looked like. And now it's taken over like four city blocks, like full on campus style, you know? Oh my God. And it's kind of transformed the town a lot. And who, I'm going to bop around in the beginning here just because I yeah, cut yeah. you off. Who, so who do you know from Undateable? I know a lot of those guys. I knew Brent, super cool. Uh, Brent truly is like, yeah. I saw Brent do stand up in 2013. I was like, this guy is the fucking future of comedy. Like mm-hmm. he was doing the like, Mike, get the car, like yeah, that yeah, whole yeah. thing. And, um, for whatever reason, he and Glassman and not really Funches, I didn't really know him, but like they were so nice. And I had been trying to like figure my way into writing for a long time. And I remember I wrote my parents this email after one night where I was like, Brent, me, Glassman, Chris, and then like Dom Herrera, the Wayans brothers, like at Greenblatt's. And I was like, Mom, I made it. I yeah. had dinner. <laughs> I had matzo ball soup with the Wayans brothers and Dom yeah. Herrera. Um, it's so funny how those like, where did you move from? I lived in Encino in the San Fernando Valley. Oh, because you grew up in this area. Yes. But like not, like when I tell people that, they're like, oh, like you're a fucking LA kid. And I was like, not really. Like I grew up in Encino. I went to this hippy dippy pothead school and I went to Boston University for college. So I was here and I saw, you know, the town and the industry and I wanted to be a part of it, but it wasn't like, you know, I Mm. was... uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's kid or anything. Right. You weren't going to parties whose parents were like celebs and yeah. shit like that. Yeah. No, I feel you. It's a, you were adjacent to it close enough to like be like, Ooh, I want to be a part yeah, of Yeah. There were like, listen, like Gracie DeVito was in my class. And so like Danny was like the most famous person that we like ever got to see. And every once in a while he would like be kooky and funny at a play mm-hmm. date. But other than that, it was like just, you know, trying to go to parties and meet girls and smoke pot. It was yeah. your normal high school. Normal high school. Yeah. I, um, so I started in San Diego, right? But I grew up in the Bay. And so when I wanted to move, it was kind of like, it wasn't as intimidating as trying to move to New York. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, LA's right there. I've, I've met a bunch of headliners and stuff. So let me just see if I can go over there and do the thing, you know? But then when you get to a, even if you, I've been doing, I kind of gone on a tangent here. No, please, dude, but, Faraz, this is what we do. We, we, do, we do roundabouts, circles, yeah. you, you, we'll get there. Right on. So feel free to just <laughs> direct me back. No, dude, up. there's no directing. This, this is a, you, you feel free to just free associate, dude. Yeah, we'll, just a little backstory. Yeah, little please, we'd story. like context. Thank you. Right on. So, uh, so I kind of moved out here about three or four years into comedy because I started when I was like, 18, 19 in college. I was yeah. at UCSD. Okay. But um, I was studying poli-sci and double majoring in theater. Oh, so it's kind of like I was always on this trajectory to like be a lawyer. But then like I was doing theater for me for like funsies, you know, because my parents were just like, that's not for us. We don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> you don't do like acting comedy. That's not in the realm of reality. Yeah. Right. Um, but I was always, I started writing then too. So because I was doing the theater program, but I was even more interested in the, all the screenwriting classes that were available than necessarily all the acting right yeah definitely not stage design or lighting like i didn't give a shit about that which is why i didn't finish the major like yeah. i took more than enough credits for more than a minor yeah but i was like i don't want to because they wanted you to work for like two months on a production doing lighting and costume and yeah, shit no thanks and I was guys like, i'm doing stand-up at night i don't got time for this so even after doing three four years of stand-up there getting to the point where i was like a middle act and like you know headlining the local show so you're kind of like one of the top guys in the local scene Moved out to L.A., kind of had to start all over again, running to the open mic, doing all that, and just building yourself back up. You know? That's incredible that you did those open mics because, like, in high school, we had to do a... 
um, our senior year, you had to do a senior project to graduate. Where it was like, go and do something you can't be taught. So I went and did stand up at the comedy store, and I had to like wait in line all day. And like, it's you and a bunch of like unhoused vagrants for the most part. So many homeless people. Ah, oh, dude, it was a harsh <laughs> yeah. toke on the bong of life. <laughs> so I salute you. Yeah, it was it was rough, dude. Because especially because it's a big ego swallowing moment if you've already done that phase once. Yeah, I'm and sure. You, you passed. You got out of the open mic phase in your city, which. I did f- faster than most. Some people, you know, they open mic. And even if you're in San, Di- I mean, LA is a whole different animal than San Diego. Yeah. Um, so it's understandable. It can take longer for some, but even in a city like San Diego, people could be open and open micing for three, four years before oh they God. get on booked weekend shows, paid shows by whatever clubs are there. But so I, to make it out of that and be like, holy shit, I'm doing it. And then you come to LA and it's like, all right, motherfucker, strap in. Now you have to go pay for the open mic. Drive, pay for parking, put your name in the lottery bucket, and you might not even get picked I know. 70% of the time. It's it was, horrible. Yeah, it was just complete. There's no way I could do it again. <laughs> and then I was I was personal training at the time. That was my last day job. So I was a trainer at Crunch in WeHo. Oh, all right. That's a nice gym, though, is it not? It was it's super not like nice. Planet Fitness down by La Brea in the 10 <laughs> where I was. <laughs> Yeah, very different. Yeah. Uh, Alfred Molina worked out there. Wow. Uh, Doc Ock getting Doc his Ock. fucking leg day. That's how I knew him, just showed how not cultured I was, that other people <laughs> were like, oh, he's working in this play or that or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's Dr. Octopus. Yeah, you're like, that's Dr. Oct and also the fat guy from Boogie Nights with the fucking cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Jeff Goldblum used to work out there. Oh, wow. And Jeff Goldblum would always come in just the... I, the guy maybe didn't own a pair of workout shorts. He would be in jeans, like nice dress shoes, a fitted white tee. He would work out with the worst form I've ever seen in my fucking life. I tried to give him advice once, and he was kind of gave me a very polite, but like, fuck off, I know what I'm yeah. doing. Thanks, when, dude. Yeah. Get the fuck out of yeah. here. But he like... I'm the fly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the fly, dude. He unbuttoned his shirts a little bit. Um, who else would be... Uh, who's that one girl that... The one, Stacy Dash. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Stacey uh-huh. Dash would work out there. And when she would, it was so, you know, she kind of like later became a Trumpster and stuff yes. like that. Yes. And I was like, all right, now it all makes sense that there were some screws loose early on. Totally. Because when she would get training from my friend who was training her, she would moan like she's getting banged uh-huh. at like really loud volumes to the point where everybody on the gym floor would kind of look at her <laughs> and then look at each other and like, what? Yeah, it's like, I'll, I'll have what she's having, basically. <laughs> yeah. Just like doing like bench press. Just like, uh, uh, and I'm like, nope. you're like, dude, you're not enjoying it that much. Yeah, like, There's no way. Yeah, nobody makes that noise from lifting. But I would have to start training at 6 a.m. Oh, dude. Then I'd, I, you know, there's clients scattered throughout the day. I'd make get my last client at 5 p.m. on Sunday and Monday for open mic sign up. Get out of there at 5. Literally run the mile from Crunch to the comedy store in my trainer outfit because there was no time to change it. I'd run because I'd make it there. They take the sheet away at like. 5.50. So I had a 5 o'clock client ask for permission. Hey, man, can we just cut 10 minutes early? I got to go sign up at this open mic. He's like, yeah, sure. So I'd run there, get there by like 5.55, put my name on the list, change, wait 45 minutes for them to decide who even made the open mic. Uh, wouldn't even make it 80% of the time. Then if I did make it, it was like shit back then. It wasn't like the store now. Yeah. It was like really empty. And stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of went through that phase and then moved up the ladder there to get to the points of being like what's known as like friends and family. Mm-hmm. So I get like spots, but I'm not like on the wall. Yeah. Um, so that I had to go through that process for a few years before I was able to quit the day job training and started getting enough comedy money, touring, headlining, and then middling for more famous friends where the machine kind of started to build in a way yeah. where it was like, okay, cool. I'm like paying rent. I'm more poor than I was when I had the training job, but now I'm totally <laughs> free and we're building, you know? That's what's up. And then I did the, um, 
quick bullet points, just like the the CBS diversity showcase uh-huh. and that as an actor, but you also like sketch right in that. Yeah. So it's like an SNL kind of format. Is that thing. what led you to Two Broke Girls? Yeah. That's how I got. I did my homework, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did a little bit of homework. I was going to say, that's a, <laughs> yeah, good homework. And also, like, it took me a second to, yeah, because um, Julie Ashton, who is the casting director, she came through and watched our, like, practices in the basements of CBS. Wow. Which was like a hellhole back then. Sounds like it. Dude, they, everyone who ran the program my year got fired two years later, and they've been running the program for, like, 10 years. So, like, like you let that Faraz kid through, you're over. You're done. <laughs> well, they got kind of like semi canceled for like perpetuating like racial stereotypes oh, no. through, the, through the diversity program. Oh, no. Um, and uh, they wouldn't even get us like water. I would have to like drink from the bathroom faucet. Literally, there's in the basement. That's like, there's nuts no, there's, as fuck. Bro, there for four or five months. And then, like, two years after I did that, everybody who's in the showcase got $20,000 each. I was just like, why do I fucking miss? Why does everything change whenever I'm there, you know? Uh, and so it did that. That kind of got me, like, on the other side of L.A. where I got, like, good agents and start, people started looking at the scripts I'd been writing the whole time. Like, what are you developing? This and that. So I started getting to um, pitch things. I directed and shot this, like, short film, and that got some heat for a little bit. And we started developing that project with Larry Wilmore for a little bit. Nice. Didn't really, you know, kind of stayed in the development. Yeah. Couldn't get it to where development hell. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't get it to the point where we made it anything. But then I got into the, the Disney writing showcase. Uh, fellowship. I saw that as well. Yeah. Also, way to back up a second. Were Mm -hmm. you actually asked to be in the CIA or is that just a joke on your thing? Because I was like, I could imagine it because like you are in shape. You do seem like a smart cat. Like what? Yeah. Is that just a bit or were you actually asked to be like, are you interested in recruiting the CIA? Yeah, I was technically in the CIA for three weeks. Shut the fuck up. Can I ask you about this or were you like sworn to NDAs and stuff? Uh, Yeah. No, I mean, I signed some things, but I feel like it's... I didn't go far enough and learn anything. All I want to know is like, what yeah. is the, what is like, like, is it like the army where you go and you have to like sleep in a bunk for three weeks and wake up at five? Like, what is like the first step of like, hey, do you want to be in the CIA? <laughs> Dude, and no, it's so funny because it sounds like it'd be a sexier story, but like, because I got a job. So I was hired as a counterterrorism analyst. Um, I don't know how they hire like, officers who are going out in the field and trying to be spies or shit. Yeah, like, I'm thinking like you, you were know, being like a, as a Navy SEAL, like holding your breath in a bathtub yeah, for three minutes. Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely not. I don't want, I always said, I don't want any job where like the, a bad day has potentially being tortured. You know, <laughs> like I can't handle torture at all. Uh, so if you're trying to be one of those guys, I imagine they're looking for some badass dudes that like can do some badass shit and maybe there's something like that. When you're trying to be an analyst, it's so funny, man. So you know how there's like career fairs yeah. at colleges, right? Yeah. So I go down to the career fair. It's like senior year. I'm already doing stand-up. Right? I'm like trying to think about like being a comic full-time. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm already got accepted into some law schools. And I'm like trying to figure out like what am I doing, you know? And I go down to the career fair and there's like, you know, little like white pop-up gazebo tents yeah. just down the whole thing. And right by like, there's like Geico, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, literally, and then like the CIA right next to it. <laughs> and it's a white pop-up tent and on white printer paper, they have typed up CIA, just taped to the white thing. Very low budge. <laughs> just not where the budget's going at all. They've spent all the money covering up the alien conspiracy. They don't have much more to spare. So I go up to him and I'm like, is this like the CIA or does this stand for something yeah, else? Right? You guys mean CAA? Like <laughs> yeah. you make a typo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and so I, I, I'm trying to remember the events. I basically like give him my uh, resume, right? And at the time I had done a bunch of like, I was like a really good candidate for this shit. I had like worked in DC for Schwarzenegger. I like 
uh, studied in Budapest, studied like international relations and some like international law program there. And, and then I just had like a really high GPA and I have this complexion and face and background and language skills and you know what I mean? So that, that adds a huge bump. So basically looked at my resume and I talked to him a little bit. I'm like, cool. Yeah. I've been thinking, I just always knew I wanted to do something different. Yeah. You know, I always knew like, like going to law school and being like a normal lawyer. You didn't want to go to enterprise. I, I totally not, get it, dude. I didn't. I mean, great, great benefits package. Totally. Great <laughs> benefits package. <laughs> But yeah, not for me. So different I, kind of torture. Different kind of <laughs> different kind of torture. So I was like, all right, let's see what this is about. And I'm leaving, and the guy like chases me down like three gazebo tents, and he's like, hey, this was your resume, right? And he's like, yeah, we just looked it over, and like I'm gonna fast track this to my superiors. There's a lot of things on here that are like big, like tick the boxes for us or whatever. Um, and I'm like, okay, cool. I get a call. He goes, so if you get any calls from block number over the next couple of days, answer any block numbers. So then I start getting, I get a blocked number call that night. And then they're like, yeah, we want to fast track your recruitment process. Are you available for interviews and testing and blah, 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 like as early as next week. So I started going through these, like doing like these big standardized tests. I have to do like report, like uh, give, I give three presentations to like a couple of age officers. On or, anything? Or are they like, we want you to do a thing about what's going on in, you know, Iraq, whatever. Yeah. It kind of, it was like the prompt was loose, but it was like, it was like loose, but like heavy. Cause it was like. It was literally something along the lines of like discuss uh, three world crises and how you would solve them. Sure, no problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I talked about um, drug trafficking through South America, and uh, I talked about the emergence of cyber terrorism from China, which was just beginning at that time, and how that was one of the major new threats to worry about. And I talked about how the war in Afghanistan could never be won, so we'd have to separate Al Qaeda from the Taliban because they're two different entities. And um, and try to make peace with the Taliban being in power because they're um, extreme, but they're not they're not a militant terrorist group. They're just extremists, which sucks. But we're not going to beat them because of the culture of Afghans, and I'm part Afghan. And that's I read what, that you're uh, Afghani Pakistani. Yeah, yeah, Got it. yeah, mostly Pakistani. But my my mom's mom is Afghan. Have you ever visited Pakistan? Yeah, I've been to Pakistan like probably twelve times. Okay, we need to touch on that after. Keep going. For sure, for sure. Haven't been to Afghanistan because it's kind of been at war. <laughs> yeah, forever. <laughs> this just uh, in, Faraz, not in, in, in Afghanistan. In yeah, exactly. So like, and that, and so that's what ended up happening in Afghanistan too, right? Is we that's what ended up happening. We we couldn't beat them. And these guys will just fight and die. They're, that's part of the culture, like Spartan shit, almost. Like, <laughs> like when you're when you're like an Afghan person growing up there, it's like part of the culture is like. Okay, like at some point, a foreigner will invade the country. You and your homies will probably have to fight them. A lot of you will die and you'll go straight to heaven. And that's what you do to like defend your country and like make sure that no foreigners will ever rule the soil. Jesus. So if you're, if you're brought up with that being like the culture and also you believe that you'll go to heaven for this and you're being like a good Muslim boy or girl, how can you? And they're like humble people. They're not like, they're not infatuated with materialistic shit. It means like nothing to a lot of these rural people that live yeah. there, right? There's plenty of just like, there's all kinds of people there, but like, the bulk of rural people, right? So that understanding made me give that advice, and and that's what ended up ultimately happening. But anyway, so I think they liked that. Uh, so then they were like, oh, I also had to fill out like a deck of uh, like this fucking huge deck of like everybody I've ever known or anyone I'm related to in any other country ever. And I so I had to like think about all the relatives I have in Pakistan, and I don't know if you know this, but like brown people be fucking like they be breeding like rabbits, right? Like all my all my uncles and aunts have like seven kids, all of whom are married with like seven kids. So Damn. like, and I haven't been there in like at the time in like fifteen years. So I'm like, I don't even know. Like in the last fifteen years, there's literally like fifty more relatives of mine that have popped up. But I did my best. Um, 
So I did all that. And then they, they're like, yeah, you're hired. Here's your clearance code. Here's your, here's your security clearance. Here's your, uh, fucking pay. Here's what you're going to be doing, blah, 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 blah. And I just kept saying yes to shit because I was just trying to, I was just trying to stall for time. You know, I was like 21 years old. I was doing stand up now. I was still kind of like just in like open microface slash sometimes getting to host a club on a weekend, getting like 20 bucks, you know, and but I knew it's what I kind of wanted to do. And I also had my law school stuff. So my, my, the idea occurred to me, I was like, you know what? Oh, he said, before that, he said, okay, it's going to take like a, normally takes a year for these things to process and background checks. So just be patient with us. It'll probably take almost a year. So I was like, cool, I'm going to defer law school acceptance for a year. These motherfuckers will take a year. I'll have a year to just hit the pavement with stand up and see if it's for me, if there's any upward movement or if I'm a crazy person and I can go cash in law school or CIA when those come, when a year comes. Within two months, he hit me up and he's like, we're fast tracking you. You're fucking in. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, cool. I'll do it. You know? And then I did the, the date just kept coming where he's like, you're moving to Liberty Crossing in Virginia in like three weeks. Um, so I was just then like different onboarding shit was kind of happening. And the one cool thing that I learned that I was looking forward to was, um, because I did want to do some cool shit. Like, you know what I mean? And yeah. one cool thing that even as an analyst, you do, you can have um, the option to, but it's in, you know encouraged to like spend some time on like a military basis for a certain amount of time every year where you just like learn a fuck ton about like explosives, like how to build bombs, everything about them, how they work, how they operate so that wow. you can, and like blowing shit up. So you, so, so if you're in counterterrorism, right, you need to become a bomb expert. Because if you're picking up chatter about any component for any type of explosive, you need to be able to do the math about like, okay, these guys have a, let's just say, copper wire coming, and that's some kind of bomb thing. Yeah. These guys have this kind of chemical coming, and these guys know this guy from that loop. So these guys might be trying to connect here and here and develop this type of bomb based on these types of raw materials that I've heard chatter about. So that was kind of cool to learn that that's one way some of their shit works. Yeah. You know? But I uh, got cold feet. And I was just kind of all, not because I didn't want to do it, all because I wanted to do stand up. I just knew I wanted to do stand up instead of that. And also, I was like, I don't know if I want to just be a cog in the machine, you know? Yeah. I fucking love Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. <laughs> and like working in DC for Schwarzenegger for a little bit kind of taught me that you can go into government things with a sense of idealism and how you hope to change the world. And like, like I wanted to go catch bad guys. Like, I, I'm a nice person, but I'm like, I could be fucking ruthless if it's about killing terrorists. Yeah. Like, let's go. So I wanted to do that. But I was like, you might think you're doing shit to go kill some terrorists and you might give some intel that results in a Red Cross or a fucking village in Afghanistan to get bombed. Now you've got a bunch of blood on your hands, oh, right? Boy. So I was like, that's maybe not for me. And I'm going to keep doing stand-up. And so I just told him, I was like, I forgot to tell you, I smoked weed in Amsterdam one time. I didn't want to incriminate myself, so I just said I was in Amsterdam. And they're like, oh, man, shit, sorry. We should, we should told us earlier, but they were actually apologetic. Like, they were so chill. He's like, dude, I'm so sorry, but, like, that's going to disqualify you. So we're going to have to, like, cut you. We'll keep your file open. Just let us know when one year exactly has gone by from the last time you smoked weed, and then we'll get you back in here. Wow. And I was like, don't keep my file open. That's fucking weird. <laughs> and that was, yeah, and that was the last I heard from them. And then I just kept hitting the stand up journey. For us, first of all, it's incredible that you had the like cojones and also the wherewithal to know, like, I don't want to do this and I'm going to go pursue this other career. And also to have the courage to stand up to your parents who probably were like, please be a lawyer or a CIA agent instead of a fucking open micer at the comedy store. <laughs> right. Like, good for you, dude. <laughs> thanks. That's man. incredible. Thanks. Have thanks. you ever written about any of this? 
I mean, I have like a pilot that's like that was inspired by the secret agent thing because I had to keep it all a secret from everyone. Uh-huh. So like when I wasn't following up with the law school stuff and I was just trying to find odd jobs doing stand up and I couldn't tell my parents I had the CIA thing brewing. Yeah. Um, they just were kind of like, what are you doing? Right. And so it was kind of like this person's good doing this. This person's in law school already. This person, and what are you doing? Like you're trying to get some, you're going back to personal training. Like, what are you doing? Uh, so it kind of is based off of that, like double life yeah. where it's like, you're not able to tell your parents what you're really up to. So that pilot is about, that pilot's about a guy who's a secret agent and he has to move back in with his parents in a small farm town and work at his dad's Seven Eleven by day and sneak out to save the world by night. It's nice. called 007-11. Oh my God. That's so fucking yeah. funny. Thanks. Thanks. So like, it's inspired stuff like that. Yeah. And more like thematically, it, it brought me back to that place in high school where like, I know every kid has to deal with a level of a double life with their parents and what they're really up to. But I feel like it is more extreme in a Muslim household where like you literally can't even go on dates. You yeah. know what I mean? Or like a sip of alcohol unheard of. So like, yeah, it, it just reminded me. I was like, dude, it's like I lived my whole life being a secret agent essentially and uh, not being able to show who I really was. So. My freshman year roommate, Abad from Pakistan, who I'm still very close with, like, he was so excited to come to America because he was going to do all of the things he had never been allowed to do. Like, mm-hmm. except for Ramadan, which he was like very militant about. Mm-hmm. He was like drinking every night. Like I tell everybody <laughs> this, he he was obsessed with scrubs and Oasis and dance music and just porn and like could not wait to <laughs> be out from the shadow of his parents. Um, but I think, dude, you could literally create a show about like when you started talking, I was like, oh my God, like what if there was a show about a stand-up comedian who's actually a fucking, you know, like a like Barry almost, where you're like an yeah. assassin and you're going around the world doing stand up, but it's really a ruse for you to kill people. Yeah, no, I have that. That's one of the ones on my on your slate. Yeah, I have like a one sheet that's basically like that. It's and awesome. It, have you pitched they, that to anyone? I have not. You should. You not. could sell that in like five. Not today because no, we're striking, striking. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but still, like, what a good idea, man. Thanks, man. I, I, that's so. That's such perfect timing to hair, bro. Because I've been like racking my brain during this time of like. You know when you have a few ideas you're excited about, and you're I like, mean, dude, they're just like a fucking <laughs> yeah, you're just whiteboards yeah. filled up, and you're you're trying to say, okay, but once I pick, I'm committing to like three to four months. Man, I don't know how fast you do stuff, but like for me, like no, totally, you know, like three even for a pitch, it's yeah. Because like, for me, if, if I'm going to do the pitch, even though I know you don't have to write the pilot, I like to really iron a lot of that shit out so that the world and characters are just alive inside of me. Um, and so I knew that that's what it would become because I'm just kind of OCD like that. And so I was trying to decide between which ones. And, and that's one of my top three is about, uh, a comic that basically is recruit. It's kind of like, you know, confessions of a dangerous mind. Yes. I, exactly what I was thinking, yeah, dude. Yeah. So you as Sam Rockwell, I, mm. I, if I were an executive and someone pitched me that I would buy that immediately. Oh, and so shit. when you were talking, look, I'm not an executive and uh, not that I know everything, but a good idea is a fucking good idea, whether someone pitches you the post-it note or mm-hmm. uh, a great TV show. So, like, right. I think that's awesome, dude. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And uh, and the 00711 one I wrote was bigger and a little more, little more zany. Yeah. Um, a little more broad, zany action comedy. And this one I see more, like, tonally dark, more Barry, Confessions yeah. of a Dangerous Mind, like, kind of slick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, a little more grit to it. That's kind of, like, where I like my voice to live the most. Yeah. In that, like, dark place. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's one thing I'm trying to trying to cook up right now, and uh, just a lot of lot of lot of time to think about which ways you want to be creative right now. Yeah, you know, and so between trying to write something new and and playing that game and talking to my my reps are like, 
Oh, they're going to want pitches when this is all done. Everybody's going to want pitches. I don't know if you're hearing this chatter or if you're hearing different. It's nice that your reps uh, in television call you. So <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a weird place because like I used to, you know, when you're before I found these uh, agents, I was also like trying to decide which where to go. Right? That you're always playing that game where it's like, oh, do I want to go somewhere where they're like really really big, but I'm going to be small fish, or go somewhere where it's like I'm a I'm a good sized fish. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm in here, but yeah. maybe they're not. I'm a nice marlin. I'm a nice marlin. <laughs> I'm a nice marlin. At least, a, at least a decent bass. And uh, but and at least they'll but they'll pick up the phone all yeah. the time. You know what I mean? And and we're in the journey together. So like I found I uh, I'm comfortable where I'm at right now. Um, but again, it's always on you, right? It doesn't matter where you are. Yes. I feel like you've got to be hustling. You got to be meeting people, and you got to be creating shit and like showing people that you can walk the walk right like dude i'm so glad you say that because when you know every once in a while when like my mom or someone's like hey can you talk to so-and-so's kid they want to be a writer and i tell them like dude the truth is like you need to be a producer like i don't mean like you've had to have produced titles under your belt but like no one is gonna do it but for you and you really you gotta build stuff until mm -hmm. until you are an incoming call where they're like we want the kid who created the bear you have to create the bear and figure out how to get it up and running because no one's going to believe in you more than yourself. Yeah, you that's, know? that's great advice. And especially in today's age with like social media, you know, not to like be a dead horse. I know no. people talk about it all the time, but it's like, that's what I've been focusing on heavy, heavy through the strike. Because I, with my stand-up and everything, is I was like, all right, I'm going to make, I'm going to cut up and I've, I've cut up now like 35, 40 clips. I've seen them. Oh, <laughs> They're great. They're, what's the one that's like gone the most viral? It was up like two weeks ago and I'm forgetting... Um, is it about, it about Uber the, or what? No, there's one about a guy who people who try to eat healthy, but they have other. Habits. Yes. With the cocaine, the cocaine yeah. guy. That yeah. was so good. Cause Dude. I have friends like that. And I'm like, they like try to be super healthy. And then they're yeah. just like, let me do some ketamine real quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then let me just, I, yeah. Like I don't, I don't do ibuprofen, just essential oils between my ketamine. Yeah. Like that's, that's such a thing. And it's resonating with so many people. That's, that's what I find interesting about it is. Yeah, views are dope. You know what I mean? It's it boosted my numbers. It's at like three million views right That's now. It's incredible, dude. Yeah, and the, dude, the comment section my is just degenerate. Like I, <laughs> bro, just like normal people with normal jobs, just in the comment section, openly talking like, "Ah, oh, that's me," or like, uh, "Oh, this reminds me of you," and tagging their yep. friends. Uh -huh. and I'm like, are you just like shouting out your homies who do a bunch of blow? Yep. Like, <laughs> yes, is, they are. What a, millennials are crazy, bro. Like they're just like they're, they're not they're just shameless, you know. So it's, uh, so I, yeah, like chopping those things up and I was like, all right, let me just curate shit for like the rest of the year yeah. so that when we get back to work on Delhi boys, then like, I don't have to worry about editing and cutting. Cause it's time consuming. I, I mean, each, I each clip before I got my groove and really figured out what editing choices I wanted to make. Yeah. It took me probably like six hours. I want when this is over. I want to ask you about that because I've realized like, oh, in order to like boost numbers for this, I need to start doing videos that are like when I say Faraz, like a video of you pops up behind me and like the Deli Boys logo and then mm -hmm. the two broke girls logo. And I've literally before you got here, I was like YouTubing like how to do green screen TikTok with multiple <laughs> pictures. Yeah. Um. So it sounds it like and it's a lot of fucking work. Like you don't assume what goes into these fucking things that you just like scroll through and throw away. It really is, and it's like God, I, I just can't, I just can't wait to have the money to just like hire an editor for. Everything, but uh -huh. like you know, when you <laughs> dude, like editing takes so long. But I like know. when you have the knowledge for it, it'll save you just thousands of dollars. You totally. Know? So yeah, I'm I'm editing that shit, and I'm I'm working on some new characters for it, and 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 new ways to just cut through the the noise, you know? Because now like every comic and their mama is just posting their clips, whether mm -hmm. it's crowd work clips or here's a bit, here's crowd workers, here's a, and 
and it can be good. Like my shit can be good and their shit can be good. There's a, there's a lot of very good comedians. So at some point, what I'm really trying to focus on right now is how do you make stuff that is arguably even, it could be even a little less good than your competitors, but highly fucking unique. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, are you familiar with like Seth Godin? No. He's like, Should I be? Yeah. Okay. But but like you don't have to. He's like, he's like a marketing fucking way. He's like a Michael Jordan. Is he the, of like wait, marketing. is he the key, the guy who does the TikTok where his, his Instagram is like Schwinnebago brand and he like talks? You're like no, it's. Not. I don't. I don't. I don't know. He's like a. He's not like a younger TikToky guy. He's like a. Like a, he's done a. He's done like a bajillion TED talks and like. Does he the? There's he a glasses. Guy. He's bald. He wears like glasses that are like purple or yellow. Is he white? He's not white. He's like a white Jewish dude. Okay, then no. I'm he, watching a different guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's sorry. A, this guy. I mean, dude. There's say marketing guru and like nine. There'll be there's endless amounts of marketing gurus with the secret to get your idea. Out yes. There, yeah. Especially at social media, but he has he the ideas he kind of really pushed was um, the idea of a purple cow. So like, if you're driving and you have kids in the backseat and there's like, they see a cow. It's like, wow, daddy, a cow. And they'll be entertained by this cow for maybe five minutes. Cool cow. If you're parked at a red light for an enormously long traffic jam for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, they're not going to be looking at this fucking cow after 10 minutes because it's cows are boring. Yeah. But now there's cows, there's cows. But if they see a purple cow, you guys will stare at that purple cow for an hour, two hours. You'll stare at the purple cow forever. You'll call your friends about the purple cow. Yeah, you'll cow. talk about it when you're going to yeah. bed, probably. Yeah. And the purple cow doesn't have to do anything different necessarily than the other cows, but it's a purple cow. So, like, how do you find your purple cow in whatever you're doing? Where, like, yes, make it your own, make it personal, make it authentic, make it good. But how do you make it fucking purple? Like, how do you cut through the noise so it, 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 it commands, it demands attention, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of what I've been racking my brain about. How do you find your T-Pain auto-tune? <laughs> <laughs> it's, what, it's a great question. <laughs> you know? So, and that's one cool thing about... I mean, the one silver lining of a strike or just being on your couch endlessly having an existential crisis uh, and riddled with anxiety is also there's time to just let your brain decompress and kind of get off the hamster wheel of yeah. work work. Yeah. And I've really been using the time to just like sit and research and just go, what can I create that's just fucking different, like wildly different? And that's what I've been trying to crack. And um, and I'm going to put some new shit out there in the, in the coming weeks that's going to be, like, pretty different than, All like, right. what a lot of well, people... Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it, dude. I'm a follower. Thanks, man. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, I mean, I might try to pitch something with it first. My manager was like, that's cool. Don't post that. Let's pitch it. <laughs> Don't p- pitch something around this, what you're thinking. And then I was like, all right, fine. Fine. Uh, but when I... when. When can we pitch? First of all, yeah, <laughs> like, who knows? you know, uh, it might just end up on social media because I'll get impatient. But um, yeah, so that's kind of shit I've been doing these days, just well, spending my time on. What I want, let me let me take you back, Frost, because I want to know, growing up as a kid, like, what did you see where you're like, I want to do comedy? Was it like Adam Sandler, you know, fucking mm-hmm. George Carlin? Like, as a young boy, what made you be like, I want to do that? Yeah, I loved stand-up growing up. So, like, I would watch the Comedy Central Presents specials and... It's so funny how like every it's so funny how like and whenever you're trying to go through different people you loved you have you have to go through the they've been canceled checklist mm-hmm. and then you're like oh I'm just gotta fucking say it. God, the the truth of story you know it's like I loved Louis C K yeah, so it's too. like you know like Louis C K is shameless that was so good was so is fl- that the one we talked about kicking his child or was yeah that a, I think it's that one that's where his brand was really developed there right it was like holy <laughs> shit nobody's talking about their kids like this like mm-hmm. there's always like the family comic like oh these all Jim Gaffigan my wife, I love him but like he's yeah. very very G rated funny one hundred percent it's like the guy who does my wife and kids material he's great for America's Got Talent and yeah. And late night, Louis was like, yeah, I got wife and kids material. And you can never watch it with your wife or kids. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, 
that that freedom to just talk about shit. I think coming from like a a culture and a community where you have to be really mind your p's and q's and really careful, like who knows what. Yeah. Oh, you're going over to their house. Don't talk about this because they are going to tell that person and everyone's going to know that we did this. Or like, oh, like even if I've I was by no means like a perfect Muslim boy or something, you know. Uh, and so having to hide so much of myself and it just was like so repressing. Do you so, like pork, by the way? Um, where do you where do you net out on pork product? I actually have recently started to stop eating pork. Interesting, because uh, ever since I got my dog, I started to like I got all these like dodo videos of like dogs playing, and then it went from dog videos to like dogs and pigs playing, and then it went to just like pigs oh, playing. Shit, okay. So now I'm like seeing pigs mm-hmm. as my fucking dog. They're your friends, dude. Dude, I- yeah, and it's like fucking me up. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> and so <laughs> and so I've 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 had to kind of wean off of pork products because I'm there's certain animals where if the level of intellect and emotional intelligence is too high, I'm starting to get to a point where I'm I'm trying not to eat them. I'm not perfect by no means. And I fucking love steak, but like, uh, yeah, but I no, I'm a bad Jew too, because like, I love bacon. Mm -hmm. I don't give a fuck Thanksgiving. I'm like, mom, I don't give a fuck about a Turkey. You better make that ham that you make. Like they're like, I pork is so like, is it? I, I don't even, and like I know I'm not allowed to have same with like shellfish or like Jews can't have shellfish. I'm like I will eat 400 lobsters. Yeah. Like shut the fuck up. Do you think any part of it is? Do you think it's purely taste, or do you think any part of it has been sort of like eroticized or eroticized in a way which is making you love the pork extra because you're technically we're never supposed to have it. Honestly, I think like I think I always just like yeah sure like we'll have bacon if it's like available and I'm at a diner growing up. But mm-hmm. like when food started to become like everyone's a foodie and now we have chef's table and look at all these crazy dishes and pancetta or you know guanciale like and also master of none like all the food porn in my brain started i think that's like incepted me um because like i never i never was so cognizant of like what i was eating just like yeah it's like fucking fuel but now i'm you know when i go to a restaurant i'm like "Mm, like what pairs well with this drink i'm having and this like i think i'm a fucking you know on top chef even though i'm just ordering (laughs) dinner yeah so i think that's where but like the the seafood is because um i forget what birthday was like my parents took me to red lobster when i was like six or something and i just like loved it and so forever (laughs) i've loved lobster in a very weird way yeah um have you been down to um what's that town just past tijuana uh Oh, it's like Puerto Nuevo, I think. I have not been to Puerto Nuevo, so, even if that's the name I haven't. Is that a lobster town? So yeah, it's like a little, it's like a little fishing village near Ensenada, kind of. Oh shit! So it's not like party Mexico; it's like chill Mexico. But they have like all these amazing like lobster fucking like that's what people go down there and have. That's what the thing is like, dude. You have okay. lobster dinner for like ten bucks. Okay, I'm gonna like check fresh. that out. And it's a cool little Mexican town. Yeah, you can't. The thing is, like, you can't get good lobster in LA. My wife is from Maine, and like, truly, my wedding vows were about like how I love lobster, and like, I found my main lobster. <laughs> so when we go back east every summer to like visit her family, I just gouge as much lobster as I can. Just taking it down. Yeah, because like, who the fuck's gonna be ninety dollars for lobster at the pump? Like, get the I can't, fuck out. Yeah, of Yeah, I can't. I can't. I can't justify. It's not even good. I'm too frugal, bro. My brain is like, I'm so just frugal upbringing. Even though my parents had money, it's like. We just like anything time something feels excessive, I feel like I'm letting them win. Like whoever them are, right? <laughs> yeah. Is where they are. I'm just like, oh, they're trying to fuck me. <laughs> You're trying to convince me through marketing and your fucking nice tablecloths <laughs> that I'm gonna pay seventy. I'm gonna pay thirty dollars for this hamburger. <laughs> fuck you. <Yeah. laughs> you know. Yeah. This morning, literally, I went to Beast, the Yeasty Boys like bagel truck, and I was like, can I get an orange juice? And they're like, yeah, that'd be eight dollars. And I was like, never mind. Yeah. Fuck you. Eight dollars. Out of your juice? mind. Yeah. What? 
I'll go back with a I'll go back with a juicer and just juice my own. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. yeah, it's absurd, man. But so I did like I did. It's so funny. Like a lot of Muslims, like I didn't eat pork till I was like twenty or twenty-one, mm. and then like I took one bite of like bacon or pepperoni pizza at some point, and I was just like, "What God could hate this?" <laughs> like I had like an existential crisis because it was so fucking delicious. Um, and so I did eat it for a long time until like just in the last. It's so funny. Like in the last year or two, I'm starting to not for animal reasons. You no, know, good. For, good for you. you I, am, I have the the dude who helps me produce this podcast. He stopped eating meat like altogether. And he loves In-N-Out Burger. And so, like, once a year for his birthday, he will go. But it's only a grilled cheese that he will have, not even the meat. Mm -hmm. And so, so, like, I I totally understand this of, like, people taking a break. And also, meat makes me fucking exhausted, I've noticed, after I eat it. So, like, I'm trying to be a healthier boy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, balance is – I think balance is key is it's, like, if – if everybody just put a little bit of effort into like, I'm going to have like one or two less portions of meat a week, like that will make a fucking insane difference. Yeah. So I'm just trying to be a part of that. Like, let me just, cause I was, I mean, I was a huge meathead. Like I said, I was a trainer and stuff. Oh, so so you were totally just like, I I have going for it. I'm the Genghis Khan of chickens. I have been responsible (laughs) for so much genocide, (laughs) so much genocide on my hands of chickens, chicken breasts just all day, you know? So I've done all of that forever, but uh, so now I'm like, all right, well, how do I just like back it up a notch? Just like, yeah. I'm not saying I'm gonna have tofu every day or something, but like one, one, once a week on a dinner, I'll have a tofu and egg fried rice instead of a fucking, yeah. you know what I mean? It's not that hard. It's no, delicious too. It's, so it's oh like, yeah. When, when yeah. I go to Thai restaurants now, I'll be like, we'll have the pad Thai with tofu. And like, it's still mm-hmm. bomb. Like yeah. you're saying, it's like, you can't even, who the fuck cares? Yeah. And then, you know, yeah, when it's steak time, it's steak time. I mean, I'm not trying to do the, the extremes, extremes. I can't. Oh shit! It's all good. I can't help but notice these uh, guitars over here. Yes, sir. What can I tell you about them? I have an Epiphone as well. Yeah, that was a gift from a buddy because he has a hundred guitars, uh, and he was just like, "This is a, you know, I don't even use this. Take it." Yeah. This I got uh, in like high school. It's a Fender P bass, uh, and I do play guitar, but like never well enough to like. I think now, I mean, my ultimate dream was like I should have been a rock star, like. You know, like when I meet people that do stand up, I'm like, I should have done that. But I just like never had the will to Mm -hmm. do the open mics, travel around the country doing like, you know, these little shows in the middle of nowhere, up and down the California coast. And so I I really do salute you for for doing that, dude. I don't know oh. how I got there from guitar, but like touring. Yeah. Touring. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. No, thanks. Thanks. It, it was definitely like you know, when it all started, we would meet with some of my buddies who were like the ones who were like fucking in it from the to win it from the San Diego scene, right? It was like, no, we're trying to go all the way. Like yeah. we're not just like working in fucking somewhere over here and just doing this for funsies. There was always kind of a sentiment where it's like, we're just going to give a decade of our lives to this. Just, we called it like sacrificing your life to the comedy gods. Yep. And it was like, there's no guarantee this is going to become anything, but we're just going to go all in yeah. for as long as humanly to. possible till you the suicidal thoughts start to become too loud <laughs> then maybe then maybe it's time to hit reverse but like yeah like you didn't know where it was gonna go but i think that you know now having more momentum on the writing side for me i'm having more momentum on writing than i am in stand-up where it's almost like stand-up is almost like my a day job in a way where like i'd go and do like my money gigs enough to like pay my bills and shit like that or during yeah. the strike it's like a godsend yeah um the one time having no union is good. <laughs> when everyone else is striking, comedians are like, well, I guess all those years of being paid in chicken fingers yeah, right. is also good because now I can keep working. Um, but like now as I get more momentum on the writing side, I kind of have opposite thoughts where I'm like, fuck, man, I should have been like, I should have gone the writer's assistant route nine years ago. I could have been making like so much more money by now. I could have been 
had a higher title and been more likely to sell shit and like make my own visions. Like once you get into the writing arena, you, you, um, there's just such a different sort of white collar professional element to it. Yeah. That's hand in hand with what Hollywood is, yes. with what executives are, with what the studio is, with how shit actually gets made. Yeah. You feel like you're more on the power side of yeah. the line than a uh, gun for hire, yeah. which is what comedians are. Yeah. And I'm really loving that. Coupled yeah, with, that's, I mean, dude, know. that's what I miss the most about writer's rooms. You know, like mm-hmm. that, I truly, I am like, I enjoyed the structure of like, okay, 9 a.m., you get to the room, everyone tells stories about like my wife or my kid or my husband or whatever, and then like, you know, an hour into it, then you get to work and everyone has lunch together, and then you, like, I just, I miss that camaraderie, yeah. and it's weird. I don't know if you follow football at all or watch Hard Knocks on HBO. Are you aware of this show? I've seen, okay. I don't follow, but I've, I've seen like a few episodes. You don't it, even yeah. need to follow it, but like the way that, it's very writer's room looking to me mm-hmm. because like they go practice on the field, which could be like tape night or whatever, you know, on like a multicam. Yeah. And then they all come back to the room and they like go over the game tape and they it's like table reads. Like they truly, they structure a football team, like the writer's <laughs> room. And so watching this show, you know, about like Aaron Rodgers and football, um, I truly am like having these like, fuck, like we need to get back to writing like this. like And, and so I started saying to my wife, like, do you think I could ever like be a part of a football organization? Not as a player, but like, you know, I could be like the assistant defense coach or some coordinator. Bull- yeah, exactly. The guy, <laughs> the guy who's like running the the, the Microsoft PowerPoint yeah, behind the guy. Like, That's like a script supervisor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I totally hear you, man. Like, I want that. I want that job security the white collar like i know what i'm doing i'm gonna make money i can support my kid and my wife and i tell people like i truly feel like i got into writing when the fucking party is like i got into the party and then the cops are coming it's like (laughs) yeah that's how i feel i just got to the fucking party and it's like but if we get you know the fact that there already have been terms presented which would present a better world for us than existed three years ago means we're we're going to be better than the yes. way things were yes. whenever this wraps. Yes. And the fact that we're pushing to get even more than that yeah. is pretty dope. So, I think, dude, I, I, you know? I really do. I think this is all worth it and so important. And, mm. you know, my dad's like, I don't understand. Why at a certain point, when you take the deal, you're going to renegotiate in three years. I'm like, dude, you don't fucking understand. Like, like you're a lawyer. How yeah. are you this daft? Like, do you not, do you not understand? Yeah. There might not be three episodes, yeah. let alone three years. Yeah. What are you talking about? But, yeah. I, dude, I, 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 when I was talking to Abdullah, like, I can't imagine what it's like to finally get to shoot your shot and have your own show after what it takes to build these things, like brick by brick, yeah. and then just have it taken away from you. I'm like, that must be soul-crushing. I know. he He's taken it in good stride, man. He's But the way he puts it is he's just been in so many roller coasters. I mean, you know, to get to this point, we've all had these ups and downs. Yeah. We're like... I think at all point, at all times, we're just always ready for the bottom to fall out. I know I am. Oh, yeah. I'm just like always ready for something to go wrong. And then yeah. like, like this, this was like, you know, I got the jump to story editor and like, it's a dope show and everyone in the room is cool as fuck. And it's just like dream show dream. to be working on dream dude. And this is after like a year and a half or two between I was on American housewife on ABC. I saw that was Mike Hobart on that with you. Yeah. Yeah. Hobart was on that. He's yeah. one of the funniest. He was on Undateable. Like, yeah. Truly. I adore him. Yeah, he's great. Hobart's Hobart's great. He's he's always killing it too. He seems to always be having pieces yeah. moving. Um, yeah, he was always a cool person. Went out of his way to hit me up when I before the first day even, and was like, "Hey, welcome aboard. If you need anything, hit oh, me up." Blah, what blah. a fucking sweetheart. Yeah, he's a nice dude. And so, but but after that show, like it was like I thought. So I had an offer to write on another show in the last month, but we were still on that thing, so I couldn't take that offer. And then I was like. I was like, fuck. But I was like, you know what? This is crazy. Like, something's already coming in when this show's wrapping. I'm going to be fine. Nothing else came for like a year and a half, two years. So I'm back doing stand-up. A lot of gigs that like aren't that fun, but they pay well. That's the thing about stand-up. Unless you're like famous, famous, 
the best paying gigs are the least fun. You know, I want to talk to you about that because I got to meet Dana Carvey a month ago mm. and he was on another friend's po- He was on Andrew Santino's podcast and I happened to be working in that office. And so for 30 minutes, he like stayed and hung out and he was telling us that the best paying gigs are these corporate jobs where no one's paying attention to you. The CEO is there with his wife and they're eating and that like you just have to get through it. You do an hour of meet and greet where everyone takes photos of you and then you do an hour of stand up and it's the worst hour of your life because like you can literally hear like the waitresses and like people asking for ketchup and shit. But that's like, uh, yeah. that's the best paying gigs are the worst ones. Long totally. story short, one hundred percent. And if you're Dana Carvey, he's probably getting at least twenty five grand for something like that, maybe fifty. You know, yeah. uh, for me, it's like twenty five hundred. But it's like, hey, you could work. That's a full weekend, six shows at a comedy club. If like yeah. a lot of the time, so you can go do one wedding for like twenty five hundred, or like a cruise ship for like thirty five hundred for five days. But, that's incredible. Or a, money. Co- a college for twenty two hundred or something, right? Exactly. It's good money, especially if you don't. I don't have like. I'm not a name in comedy, but I'm a professional. I'm like a strong fucking headliner. Do you have so, a booking you know, agent? Like, does that helps you with that? Or is this just all self-generated? It's a combination. You know, there's certain gigs which come like corporate stuff, weddings, that kind of shit. Um, come, have been coming more so just from my name getting around. Someone sees me at a comedy club. Someone refers me. So that's me. And then like, I have one agent for cruise ships, just a cruise agent. That's incredible, dude. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I started... <laughs> It's, I need a cruise ship agent just bro. for like I don't know what. Like let's add let's add another agent to my just team. Just add another thing, right? And I didn't I didn't didn't really do those or plan on it much, but then like during COVID, I lost everyone lost a lot of money. Like, all my booking disappeared. I was like, yeah. so then I was like, and I wasn't doing any shows, and it took a while for everything to get going again. And weirdly enough, cruises were the only gig still going. And so my friend was like, hey, man, like I can refer you to my cruise agent if you want. They're looking for like new, diverse, like younger people because most cruise comics are like 65-year-old white yeah. dudes, right? Getting Dom Herrera. <laughs> no, no, no offense <laughs> to Dom. No shade. He's a great yeah. comic. He's just, you know, household that's, name and he's old and he's white. And that's everybody, right? Yeah. So you want a little variety So on the cruises. Uh, and so I was like, fuck it. Let's do it. You know, and 3500 a week is like, that's like staff writer money. And yeah. I was like, this is, I'll do that. So, um, especially in comedy, that's a lot of fucking money in yeah. comedy. So I was like, cool. So I don't do a lot of those, but maybe like six weeks in a year, just a segment, you know? I look at it like market segments. So it's like, I got 20, 25 coming from the cruises. I got 20 coming from colleges. And then I got like five or 10 coming from clubs. And then yep. some, whatever other little shit pops up, right? To keep it going. And um, I don't remember where the fuck I was going with this now. But basically, oh, so those are the gigs that are like not necessarily nowhere near as fun as getting to go do like the main room at the store yeah. or even the improv or lab or yeah. the improv stage. But, but those pay like 25, 35, 50 bucks or something, right? Like clubs. And if you go to a road room and I headline a B room, you might get like 1,200, 1,000 for like the weekend. You got to like sell shirts and shit yeah. to like make it more worth the trip. Totally. Like that's part of the paradigm of stand up as like a road comic or like. Middle class. You're comic. not even selling Farage shirts. You're just selling Taylor Swift eras shirts yeah. that you that you fucking <laughs> supply and <Yeah>. demand. <laughs> There's no demand for Farage shirts yet. Yeah, yet the eras shirts though. Yet, right? They'd be flying. So, yeah. So basically, when then I was going through like two years of of that again, which was fine when it was all I knew. But after you do one season on a on a show and you're getting like TV yes, writer treatment, I know. And then you go back to it and you keep thinking. You thought you were just going to jump on another show yep. and a year goes by and yep. a second year goes by. Yep. And I've, I'm like, fuck, I got to figure something out. Like, I can't just do this. It's fine now. But looking down the three-year future pipeline, I'm like, I don't want to be doing this for three years. Like, we really got to figure shit out. And then, boom, got Deli Boys, though, right? Thank God. Thank God. Two months in, strike hits. Awful. 
And I'm just like, motherfucker, I was finally like How long happy. was the, the order for the, how many weeks was that show? Or supposed to be um, before the strike? It's like a five-month job, I think. Oh, my God. So like 20 weeks? Was that? No, yeah. 25 weeks, 20 weeks? Yeah, like 20, I think 20 or 30. Though That's like the dream, dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to call Abdullah after this and be like, dude, I'm so sorry. I thought it was just like for 10 weeks. I didn't yeah. realize. Yeah, no, we had five We had five months going. Oh so we, when we get back, we'll have three more months Three more months to go. Um Faraz, can I ask you another question about Deli Boys or just writing in general? Yeah, I ask yeah. everyone this, and I'm so curious. Uh, is there any, t- like, if it's your first day in a writer's room or you've never gotten a staff writer job and you're about to start your first show, like, what do you, what would you tell people as, like, your advice to, like, you know, on your first week or, like, just like, basically what's your general advice for new writers in a TV writer's room? Yeah, okay, I'll say step one, obviously, research everything and anything you can related to the show related to the showrunners and the even the like other higher ups like what shows have they worked on yeah what shows have they been creators on versus worked on because of the things they've created or had a more of a say in shaping that'll give you insight into their actual voice because oh, i learned this after getting into it was that there's a lot of people writing on american housewife who are like i don't want i'm not like this show i don't write this isn't my voice this isn't how i write but i'm a i'm hired to write a broadcast comedy like okay. myself I wrote on America. I wrote an episode of American Housewife. But if you were like, "That's Faraz's voice," you're fucking way off. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So you got to see what I've created. Watch my stand-up. Watch what that person has created. Right. So that's one thing. The other thing is like, go on IMDb and look at everyone else in your room and try to get an idea of the rank in the yeah. room. You should know who's highest and who's at your level, because you should keep that in mind when you're when you're doing your pitching. Because you want to give the people who are higher up an opportunity to speak first, because nobody likes the new kid that's just fucking too loud. Yeah, like, and you'll learn from it. Let them shape the energy. Let them let let them be the test subjects because they can. They'll be brave, more brave. They can pitch and bomb. Yeah. And when you start to catch the trend of what pitches are working, obviously, add. Don't be scared to add your own thing and go in a different direction either. But if you're looking for a safe way in, because a lot of staff writers I know are nervous about yeah. opening their mouth for the first time in a room, a safe bet is find the trend. Yeah. Based on what's being shaped by the higher ups. Yeah. And then also don't be scared to do it. Like a lot of people think they just need to shut up for like days and days and days. And I have heard bad stories about where that can be the vibe in the room. Yeah. But I say, fuck that. I say like, if you want to speak and you're there to do a job, bide your time and pick the right thing that you're really confident in. Yeah. But if you're like fucking confident in this idea, like, and it, there's a moment of silence, like do it, dude, like go for the pitch. Worst case scenario, they say, no, thanks. And then that's the job. Like that's you're just they'll do that to everybody. So like it might hurt, but just know like that's happening to everyone all the time and just feels worse to you because you just got to the party. But yeah. like do your pitch. Don't be scared to talk. I would even what I did was like even give yourself if you find that you're not talking, like a whole day goes by, fine. Two days go by, three days start to go by, and you're like just finding you're like, fuck, I haven't talked now and the momentum's building of me not talking. Give yourself like almost like a quota. Be like, I have to talk. I have to pitch at least one thing before lunch, and I have to pitch one thing after lunch. Yeah. And force yourself to to meet that, you know? And if you talk too much, <laughs> give yourself a quota. <laughs> give yourself a limit. It's a balance. Yeah. So, you know, I start, because I get excited, and I could talk, like, fast, but I'm also not a fucking idiot. So I, like, what I, if I found that I pitched, like, I, I pitched, like, oh, I pitched, like, two or three times in like 10 minutes or something. I'm like, all right, you shut the fuck up. So I literally, I literally like set a timer. Like I was like, did the math. And I was like, don't say anything for an hour. 
I like that. Because it was like the second week on the job with these people who've been on the show together for like five seasons. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I literally made a timer for me. It's like, you're only allowed to pitch like one thing every 20 or 30 minutes for this first couple of weeks. And again, unless it's gold and you fucking feel like, oh, this is going to hit. Yeah. Which you could still be wrong. But yeah. like, let that mean something to you. One you know? of the best memories I have is like season, it was season two of Undateable, which was my first season. It was my first staff writing job. It was like week three. And we were doing a story about um, Chris D'Elia's character has a job interview, and he doesn't want to interview for the job because what happens if they reject him? Like, that was the whole thing. The story was about, like, you need to fucking shoot your shot because you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Mm -hmm. The cold open we did was about um, someone trying to explain to Brent Moran's girlfriend, like, the plot of The Matrix because she has never seen The Matrix. And when you try to explain, like, you have to, you cannot uh -huh. explain that movie to someone. Uh -huh. And um, so... You know, we couldn't figure out like what what is the medicine of the episode that Brent Morin will tell Chris to get him to get out of this office and go to the fucking job interview, like go to the job interview. And I was not really sure, but I raised my hand and I was like, well, I, it may be too far away because the cold open. But like, what if you go back to the Matrix and 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 say to him, like, you know, you need to you need to basically take the pill and like go and experience this. And of course, in Chris's warped mind, he's like, are you saying I'm the one? And mm -hmm. and of course, that became. <laughs> The thing, and like I'll never forget Bill, my boss, turning to me, he was like, show saver. I was like, holy shit. Like it was just, it was such like an obvious thing of like, yeah, bring back the Matrix. And then that informed the tag of the show, which was Chris going to his first day on the job dressed as Neo mm -hmm. with like, the, and like him. So, and then like, and he opens the door to go to work and Ron Funches is there dressed as Morpheus. And he was like, I wanted to be a supportive friend. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, the point in saying that is like, shoot your shot. If you really are confident, like you're saying, like, go for it. The worst thing is that like, you know, they don't go with it. But if you are really confident and you believe, like, this is something that could help the series, like, fucking say it. You know, I would so much rather, uh, basically, it's like Jim Morrison quote of, like, I would, I regret the things I've I've done. Those I don't regret the things I've done, but those I did not do. Yeah. I think those are kind of, like, words to live by uh, when pitching and whatever. I don't know. But, yeah. like, you're totally right. Like, don't overdo it and don't underdo it. Totally. And that's a great, that is such a great pitch, too. And it's, like, when you said it, it like, did you know to wrap it? Did you pitch it and wrap it into to Chris D'Elia's character's narcissistic tendencies of saying, I'm the one, or did he tag yes, that on? I, yes, basically, I pitched that that he would say, are you telling me yeah, I'm, I'm the, the one? one. See, that's because fucking, that, was, that yeah. was Brent and Chris's like whole repertoire was like, Brent was the beta and Chris was the alpha. and mm -hmm. um, So perfect. That's that's a great fucking pitch. But yeah, like, uh, I, and I know you're like, big deal. Is on a fucking multicam on NBC and like t 20 years ago. But the point is, like, it stuck with me because I learned I learned to be confident in that moment of, you know, it doesn't matter if you are the staff writer in a room full of much higher level people. If you truly have a good idea, people are going to be thankful because yeah. you will have solved a problem. <laughs> They're yeah. not, you know, and even if it isn't the problem solver, the fact that you like took the time to have an eloquent thought that or an elegant solve for something is going to go a long way rather than you just like pitching a dumb fart joke. Dude, totally. And also, I also learned that it's like, don't underestimate how checked out some of the higher up, more seasoned people might be. <laughs> Great point, dude. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you're not competing with the 110% effort of a co-EP. You're competing with sometimes the 65, 70% effort of a co-EP or a supervising producer as a staff writer who should be putting in 110% thought, energy, research, recon every night, coming with pitches. And when you put in that 110% energy on day, and I'm not saying these guys are always like that, but there's going to be days where these dudes who have like nothing to fucking prove, they're homies with the creator, they're fucking millionaires already, they're tired of the show, they've been on it for three seasons sometimes. Yeah. Like on those days where they're just kind of like 
They're the equivalent of like the movie Office Space. They're just fucking wasting time at work, waiting yep. to go home and play with their kids. Yep. And you bring that 110 energy, your pitches will go toe to toe and uh, and surpass them yeah. on days. And those are the days and moments to shine. So like, just believe in yourself and and go for it. You know, another practical thing. Um, write it down like what you're going to pitch but when you're starting to pitch like think of the pitch in your head haven't i like i'm my little schoolboy. yeah uh, i have a notebook i too. have a notebook with me always and like write the pitch and make it a tweet make it as succinct and yeah. small as possible and and leave room for air so they don't think it's originally has to be this version of it and that's another good opening into the pitch with some version of maybe it's some version of yeah because when you say it's this, they go, it's not that yeah, yeah, because yeah. of this logic thing. Yeah. Uh, but if you like some version of, and then you say the sentence you wrote down that gets you in, out, fucking let them sit with it. Because the worst is when you go into a pitch and you're like, it's just in your head. And then you start talking and you just are mumbling and bumbling and you're the staff writer and everyone's just looking at you like this fucking nervous idiot. Just say what you want to say. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So write it, write it down. Uh, the other thing that I that I that does drive me nuts in, in in writers' rooms is like when people use all the slang of like the blow to the scene is house numbers, uh, bad pitch. It's like you're just using like what like get to the gist of what it is. Like we don't need to fucking qualify like with th- four different phrases, you know? Yeah, I it, that that could be a whole sketch in its, totally. in its own way. Totally, absolutely, it helps though. It does. Right? Like, I will always say like bad pitch, like that, just to like buy my to, to hedge a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Self-deprecation, man, it, it goes a long way, whether you're on stage doing stand-up or you're pitching to a room of people. It's just like, I'm not saying I'm the best, but here's the thing. When I'm going to meet someone, like, you know, like, oh, if it's like a drinks or a coffee or and they haven't met me yet, I'm like, look for the fucking guy who looks like Al Franken ate Seth Rogen. Like, just <laughs> like, I'm, I, I, because you see me and you're like, that guy. Yeah. Uh, and so I truly believe, like, self-deprecation is a way to win people over because you have, you have put them at ease and know that it's okay to make fun of yourself and that, mm. you know, it's going to be light and fun and not like, you know, you're not some like crazy fucking stick up your butt person. No, totally. Totally. Oh, I watched uh, Fairfax, the pilot today, by the Thank way. Thank you, dude. Dude, so funny. Thank you. Like, Thank legit, you. legit, super fucking funny and, like, unique. And, yeah, just, like, I was watching it, and it was so funny, but, like, I was even more impressed because I was like, how did you, how, are you guys just the hippest writers? How did, did you have to do, like, a bunch of hip kid research? Like, I was like, yeah, I know that's a thing. Once you brought things up, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm aware of this and that, and I see what you're doing. But, like, I don't know if it would all organically come to me without, like, a bunch of YouTubing here, here, here's a couple. Uh, t- first of all, thank you. Um, what it truly was, uh, was a couple things is just like, I am a pop culture lunatic. So like everything that, whether it's Timmy Chalamet or Greta Thunberg or Supreme, um, there were certain things that like, I just was sort of cognizant of. And, uh, it always felt important to make the stakes like life or death because when you're 13 years old, it is life or death. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you know, getting a T-shirt, life or death. If we don't get the shirt, we're going to be fucking losers for the rest of our life. It's like mm, it doesn't really matter if you get the fucking shirt, but yeah. the stakes attached to it. And at the time, like you said, after Undateable and this next show that I got, I didn't get staff for two years, and so I went to work at Barney's, the, the clothing store. Oh, and yeah. so while I was there, I worked with a bunch of hip 26 year old kids. My boss, my truly my direct report was 22. I was 34. I was like. Oh my I was like, where did I, I was like, where did I go wrong? Yeah. Um, but these kids, like, while I was writing stuff, you know, I would take pictures of, I would ask, like, can I take a picture of your outfit? And I would send it to my other co-creators, or I would tell them goofy stories. And then in our writer's room, I hired my boss, Mike, 
who is tw- he was 22 at the time and I lied I was like he wants to be a writer he wants to be in a writer's room yeah on the first day he literally like put on headphones and was watching Mark Marin YouTube and I was like dude like you have to turn around and like face the writer's room so like, <laughs> but like we would always be like dude like if the kids are wearing a cool thing like what are they like fear of God one like he made sure that things were authentic because yeah me and the other 34 year old co-creators were not as hip as a 21 year old TikTok yeah. lunatic so he was you hired him as a uh, he was like a writer he was like the second he was a writer's PA it was like your job is lunch and snacks and to like gut check us on if something is still cool or not or whatever so he was like a writer's pa that was basically like your recon for yes. like yeah what what did they do with this what's yes. what are they what's the drop today and yeah blah, blah, blah. but like but like supreme had become so stupid by the time that we pitched the show like really you know our pitch was we showed pictures of like everybody from lady gaga to brian grazer wearing supreme <laughs> um like <laughs> And we basically said, like, it's become to a point where, like, Supreme could sell a fucking dog turd in a paper towel and people would buy it if it says Supreme. Yeah. And with Amazon, we said to them, like, the clothes that we make and Lampoon in the show, we want to sell on the Amazon Prime store. And that's where their heads, like, lit up because what they said was, we are trying to find new and organic ways to lead people to the Amazon store. We don't really care how many people are watching Maisel. We care about how many people are buying toilet paper before they watch Maisel or who's buying women's golf shoes after watching Maisel or Jack Ryan or Bosch. And it's nuts because, you know, they... And I've said this a million times, Prime Video is a sunk cost. And I personally think it exists so Jeff Bezos can go to the Vanity Fair party. <laughs> so everything else, like it's just like it's just like they print cash and there's so much of it that you kind of once you explain to them, like, yeah, I'm I'm trying to drive traffic to like your your uh e-commerce. Wow. That's in the pitch where I was like, you can't like you I literally saw like their souls leave their body. Uh um, bro, that's fucking brilliant. Cause I, you know what's funny is when I was watching when I was watching it, I had some thought like that about I was picturing you pitching it, and I had some thought where I was like, I don't remember what moment it was, but I remember thinking like, did you ex- put your business hat on yes. and explain why this is like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a difference between just pitching the artistic vision yes. versus like this is why it fits this demographic yeah. of what you're trying to meet. Yeah. Like, like a a business pitch guy would pitch something. Yeah, like Shark well, Tank we, style. We did like the whole creative pitch, and at the time, you know, one of my co-creators, Teddy, he went to school with this boy, these boys, Matt and Nick. They started this company called Pizza Slime, which specializes in micro merchandising. So, like, the day Trump's mugshot came out. Within 10 hours, they had already sold mugs, T-shirts, hats, whatever. When Oprah made that speech at the Oscars where everyone was like, Oprah 2020, the next day they were selling Oprah 2020 shirts <laughs> that looked like, you know, the Al Gore logo or whatever. Yeah. So, like, they specialize in very, like, very quick reactive shit. And they have worked, you know, for Paramount. And they've done, like, Nickelodeon. Like, they did a bunch of shit. And so at the end of the pitch, the two of them spoke to how they were going to help us do all the goofy stuff that we did in the show in real life, and that they were already built into this world, into this hype beast, high snobiety, whatever world. And then, you know, within that time, like complex went from like being a lot of music to like a lot of Supreme Louis Vuitton. And like when Supreme and Louis Vuitton collabed, it sort of was like a new, it was like a, it was like a tipping point of even these huge luxury fashion houses are now paying attention to streetwear. Mm-hmm. Barney's is now selling off white. Like the, the paradigm was shifting in such a way where like you could not deny mm-hmm. that this, and also like Tyler, the creator, like really truly made Fairfax explode since the dawn of odd future in like 2011, 2012. Yeah. So it was this convalescence of all these things, but what we brought it back to was, High school, which was like when we were in high school, it wasn't Supreme. It was fucking Pogs. And the kids before us, it was fucking Beanie Babies. And now it's just Supreme. Mm -hmm. And truly, 
you know, at the end of the day, and if you watch other episodes, like our pilot is a pilot. I think episode two is like truly brilliant because what we make it about is the same John Hughes stories you've seen in every single movie. I like the cool girl. Mm-hmm. I want to be on the fucking varsity team. Only now the varsity team is esports. And in order to go to the party with the cool girl, you need a thousand Instagram yeah, followers. Yeah, hundred followers. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that is really where we try to center it. And like, even if you don't know what Supreme is, there is something there for you because everybody has gone to high school and knows what it's like to be the the new kid in class or like mm-hmm. the, want to have friends. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's a kind of story that I'm always drawn to telling too. Is like coming of age, yeah, self realization, self actualization type stories, you know. Yeah. And it's and it's just a new way of telling that in a super fun, like wild, wild way of doing it. And there all there's a lot of like inside LA jokes too, man. Totally. Like, like canters. The, the canters the swimmers. Joke, the swimmers. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I was dying at that moment when he was like, Is the food good here? He's like, No, everything's like pretty bad, but it's like forty dollars. Yeah, no it got a B rating. <laughs> yeah. Everything is forty dollars, but I love it. Yeah. I was like, that's exactly how I used to feel. <laughs> because it was like such a comic hang. Like after for there's yeah. a few years there where it was like the classic comic hang. Totally. I think some people still go. But like We'd be there, and I was like, we're all poor, and this food is really bad. Like, why are we here, man? Totally. But it's just the tradition, because it was all that was open, I think, for some time in the Dude, it's open 24 hours, and whether it was, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers or Guns N' Roses, like, there was enough lore there that, like, even if you didn't live in L.A., like, you know what a Jewish deli is like, and, like, with the old waitresses who couldn't give a fuck about you, and... Totally. um, Horrible service. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. But... Thank you, dude, because I I love it, and it, I truly, like, an, getting anything made is a fucking miracle, and that took five years. Bro. Like, we pitched it in August of 2017, and it ended up on television in October of 21. This is <laughs> like, a crazy business, man. Dude, it's insane. And, like, the whole time, like, I was working at Barney's while making this show, and I was trying to, like, hide from old bosses, and I was embarrassed that I worked there. And yeah. then I saw that Shandling documentary. Have you watched that Gary Shandling documentary? I haven't. I've heard a lot about it, but it's I It's so need good, to. Faraz. Yeah. He talks about how the more open and honest you are about your life, whether it's, like, in comedy or writing or whatever, like, the more will come to you. And instead of, like, hiding and ducking behind the, the cash wrap, I started doing, like, makeup tutorials and being silly and telling people what I was wearing. And that's where my old boss, Bill Lawrence, saw it. And oh, he yeah. saw me doing those makeup tutorials, and I said, like, I think there's a a show here about me working at Barney's and I pitched him the show and we brought Brent Morin in to play me. And like, I got out of Barney's by selling a show about me working at Barney's. And like, I truly owe that to Gary Shandling. Cause like wow. for, for like four months, I was like, p- you know, people would come in from companies that I had met or generals. Like my old boss came in and I wanted to put a gun in my mouth. Yeah. He was like, did you leave the business? I was like, well, I fucking hope not, <laughs> but I got to pay the bills, you know? No, I'm just real passionate about Barney's. <laughs> yeah. I love women's handbags, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's I can totally empathize with that. It's it's rough with the time, and but the thing is, everybody knows that everybody's had those years yeah. where you need to find some other way to pay the bills bet- before between shit that's cracking, you know. Yeah. But that's crazy that like you put yourself out there, and I, I believe that too. I think that with honesty and just like vulnerability, there's like a real power to that. Not to get too fucking woo woo on. No, you. it's true. But yeah, that's cool though. That so before Fairfax, you show you sold a different show. We so we had sold Fairfax in the middle of me working at Barney's, but the way it takes months to get paid on anything, and when you split it with three people plus you know three Jews a piece for each of those three people doing the representing, whether right. it's lawyers, agents, managers, right? It's like you're left with like a fucking dollar twenty five, right? Um, and I figured like if I can sell TV shows, I can sell women's shoes, and I will learn so much about fashion while being here. 
um, that it's kind of worth it. And so, yeah, like I got out of that because I sold the show about Barney's while we were also doing Fairfax. And to me, I cannot tell you what that was like to call my parents and be like, guys, like I sold a show to NBC today about working at Barney's. Like, cause they thought I was nuts. Yeah. They also were like, you know, I, there was a point where I called them. And I was like, guys, if there's any way I could borrow money, my dad was like, dude, get a fucking job. Yeah. Like your days of me paying for you are over. And I'm glad, like, I'm so mm-hmm. glad in retrospect that he did that. Um, but to get to turn what I thought was like a lump of coal into a diamond, it truly proved to me, like, you just got to do what you believe in and be vulnerable and honest. And like, you know, what's the worst that could happen if someone passes on your project? But yeah, that's that's an incredible story, dude. It's nuts. That's fucking that nuts. I fell to my knees, like, because with, with network pitching, you find out two hours, three hours later, sometimes while you're even in the room. Mm-hmm. And so I pitched that show with Brent at like 10 a.m. to NBC and CBS. Um, Fox t- t- was like not interested in multicams and um, ABC was like, we only do family single cams. And so we just right. pitched it to those two. And at three o'clock, Doozer called and was like, guys, you can start celebrating. I fucking fell to the floor. And like I called Brent and I was just like, dude, you know, yeah, I, I love that experience. I, Dude, that's wild. Uh, it's life changing. It, it, it was a moment. life changing moment because mm-hmm. it, it, I always sat as a staff writer in this room being like, like, how do I how do I sell a show? Like, I would love to sell a show with Bill Lawrence. I would love to be one of these top dog co-EPs like and it happened to me by doing the thing that I did not want to do, which was going what I thought was in reverse, mm-hmm. you know, but like it's like Batman says, it's dark as before the dawn. <laughs> Dude, I think about that all the time. Dark is before the dawn all the time. And I sometimes I feel like that's I've I was telling my friend about that. I was like, sometimes I feel like that's what's happening here in life. It's like whatever your concept is of God or the upper force or whatever you want to call yeah. it, sometimes I feel like it's like they're just trying to push you to your fucking limit to see what you got, the what your soul is, what your spirit's really made yeah. of. And then when you prove that it's made of something and it's like iron sharpens iron, you know what I mean? They feel yeah. like you sharpened enough from this moment and you showed it didn't break you. A fucking door opens. Yeah. And then they're like, holy shit, I can't. Like, one of those things, it's like a miracle almost. Yeah. Like, the fact that, like, Bill Lawrence saw your makeup tutorial video <laughs> and that resulted in you selling a show to NBC, which is like crazy money. Like, yeah. It's like a fucking miracle. I you know? know? I know. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. That's awesome. Dude, Faraz, I, I, I think you are meant for glory and bound for glory. And <laughs> Deli Boys is going to come back. And we're going to sell your CIA Barry show. And, uh, you know, I look forward to my staffing interview on it. <laughs> and th- thank you for coming to do this, dude, because uh, it-, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And I truly think, like, from watching the videos that I saw and just hanging out with you that one day on the strike line, I, I was so happy to have you here. So thank you for coming, man. Thanks, man. been really fun hanging out. Thanks.